Well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, so if you have your Bibles and you like to follow along, we are in chapter 26, and uh, we are coming close to the end of this particular Gospel. It's only been two and a half years, so uh, it does come to an end eventually. One of the most well-known film series that has come out uh, ever was the Star Wars series. And they've become so pervasive in not just American culture, but worldwide culture, that it's hard to remember there was a time when this didn't exist. And uh, I remember seeing the first film in 1977 when it came out. And I was, uh, actually it came out in 77, I saw it in 78. I was 10 years old. And we had been living in Ghana, which is in West Africa, for several years up to that point. And we had come back to the U.S. for a visit And at the time, in the 70s, when I was living in Ghana, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have a telephone, we didn't have a radio. And so to to come in as a 10-year-old and see Star Wars was mind-blowing. And it really was kind of the, it kind of like set this trajectory of my my generation. And it was also one of those first movies that they incorporated merchandising in with the film. And so you had all the toys that went along with it, and I had all the little Star Wars toys and all the the little ships and whatnot, and it was, it, was, it was a real kind of game changer for my generation and younger. And then over the years, that original three, for what it, if you remember, the first one that came out in 77 started at chapter four in the story. And so then George Lucas, who made the, the movies, decided to do the prequels, numbers one, two, and three, and those came out. And if you remember, those of you who who even care about this kind of thing or, or follow it at all, these weren't all that well received. There was a lot of people who were fans of the first three that felt like this was almost messing with a sacred text, that you were, you know, this, it was close to messing around with the Bible uh, in some people's minds. You, don't, you had to make sure the stories synced up, everything went fine, and uh, some people really hated some of the characters and the CGI. There was a lot of criticism, so much so that George Lucas actually sold the property at that point. He has got so tired of all the criticism that he sold it to Disney. And then, if you remember, just a few years back, Disney decided to do the three that came after the original three. So chapters, uh, what, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And these, if, if YouTube is any indication of how these were received, even though they made tons of money, the fan base was not happy. And, uh, and it was kind of funny. It's kind of funny to watch some of the little YouTube clips where they go back and forth where... You know, a lot of unhappy fans lashed out the new series creators, thinking they were being too woke. And the new series creators, kind of interestingly, lashed back at the fans, which you would kind of, they, you, usually they want to kind of keep the fan base happy. But the new creators lashed back at the fans, calling them a bunch of, you know, entitled man babies who needed to stop living in their parents' basement and get a life. And then it got impolite from that point on. It was crazy what, the, what went on. But it was this transition from an old and deeply impactful story, particularly for my generation and younger, to a new impactful story, or at least they were hoping to be a new impactful story, and that transition was hard to make, and it didn't really seem to make it very well. And this is not uncommon. You know, trying to make a transition from a deeply impactful story that has been around for a long time and has affected, you know, several generations to try and take that story and bring in a new deeply impactful story, it's not easy. It's not easy in cinema. It's not easy in literature. 
There's a while, some of you know the Narnia series that was written by C.S. Lewis. There was, a, there was a group that bought the rights to the Narnia series, and they were going to write a bunch of books kind of around the Narnia series, but they weren't going to have anything to do with faith. They were just going to be kind of set within the Narnia world, and those never even got off the ground. The fan base was just like, no, you're not going to mess with this, this thing that is deeply impactful in a lot of people's lives. It's also not easy in faith. Making a transition from something older to something new is very difficult in faith. You go to any church that's tried to make a transition from traditional music to more contemporary music, and you'll find that this is not easy. Or they make a transition from, a, a certain, from one pastor to another is very difficult for a lot of churches. But one of the things I find most interesting in the, in the Bible, especially as I study it over the years, is the understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the links that are there between the old and the new. And I mean, I find out stuff all the time when I study the Scripture, and I've been doing this for literally decades. Just last week, I pointed out how many times uh, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, quotes the prophet Zechariah. He, approached, he, he, uh, he quotes him several times, at least four times, in the, in the last couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. It's interesting. It's a link that I hadn't ever really made before until I was really studying in order to prepare sermons. And these links between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're more numerous than you might think, and they're not just tenuous links. They're not just kind of barely crossing, you know, from the old to the new. They're deeply embedded to each other. And understanding the Old Testament brings a lot of richness to what's going on in the New Testament. Now, admittedly, sometimes when you begin to dig into some of those links, it uncovers more questions. But questions are good. You know, good questions can lead to good understanding, so questions are fine. So in the passage we're reading today, Jesus uses the event of the Passover to lead his disciples into a new understanding of what it means to be passed over from death into life. And in doing so, Jesus presents something that's very familiar to the disciples, which is the Passover meal, but then typical of Jesus he takes it and he changes it, and he presents a radical change to it and an understanding which causes the disciples to have to rethink their old way of thinking and brings questions into their life. But again, questions can lead to deeper understanding, and so that's good. So let's take a look at This is Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be going through verses 17 through 30. It says this, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do, you want us, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples in your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, this isn't a big deal, but I find it kind of interesting in the language that when Jesus says, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near, there's almost this sense of something secretive taking place. Because that phrase, a certain man in the Greek, is an idiom which reflects that Jesus knew who this, the author knows the name of this person, but is choosing not to say it. It'd be as if he's saying, go into the city and talk to you know who, and tell him that the master is coming. And this kind of sense of that there's something bigger going on is also found in the Gospel of Luke, where he applies this kind of 007 thing where they follow a guy. It says, Jesus says, he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
Follow him to the house he enters. Then say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room that I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all finished. Make preparations there. It kind of gives a sense that there's more going on. In fact, some scholars think that, that you, know, you have the disciples that are named, but there was more followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, and that there was, there was uh, discussions going on between even Jesus and them, or some kind of you know, go-between that the disciples didn't know about. So then when it comes to the Passover, Jesus says, this is all set up. Follow the guy with the water. He's going to take you to this house. Say to this guy, whom we all we know his name, but we're not going to say so in the Gospel of Matthew, that this is being prepared. The Passover is going to be prepared there. It's kind of an interesting little thing. It's not really that important, but it's interesting. But more important and far more significant is the event that's being celebrated, which is Passover. Passover is hugely symbolic to the Jews and is tied more into what Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples. And most of you probably know the events around the Exodus, but in case you don't, the Exodus is a time when the people of the Hebrews, they were known as the Hebrews then, were enslaved into Egypt. And through a series of plagues, the last one being the death of the firstborn of every, you know, every family or every, even every animal, the firstborn was going to be killed. It was the last terrible plague to finally break the pharaohs, the king of Egypt's, stubborn grip on these slaves that they had in Egypt. And if you, as you know, Moses had led through this time, and he was told that you know, they had to slay a lamb and to paint the, the, the side post and the lintel with the blood of the lamb. And that final plague came through, and the people that had covered their doors with the blood of the lamb were passed over by death. And this is why Passover is a big deal. And for Judaism, Passover is, as central, is, is kind of the central defining aspect of Judaism. It's that place where God really acts for them in such a way where he is identified by name to them as Yahweh. They act in, in, a, in a way that is unique. After this, they get the law. This is really the central thing. This is to Judaism what the cross and the resurrection is to Christianity. So it is central, and it's no mistake that Jesus uses this event of the Passover as central to Judaism to then tie it to what becomes the central event of history, which is the cross and the resurrection. And so he wants to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And he does this a little bit earlier, actually, than, uh, than normally Passover would be taking place. But as he celebrates this Lord's Supper, he gives the disciples a similar but simpler, so it's similar, but it's more simple, set of symbols and instructions to remember. However, Matthew is very stylistic in his writing. And before he gets into the elements of the Last Supper, he needs to deal with Judas. And he chooses to deal with Judas by placing Jesus' interaction with him in the Last Supper before Jesus talks about the actual supper itself. It says this, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. 
Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it's you. Now, we talked about Judas' betrayal a little bit last week, so we won't get that deep into it this week. But it is something that people point out, that all the other disciples said, Surely not I, Lord. But Judas was unique in that he says, Rabbi. And that he sees Jesus as a teacher, but he doesn't see him as his Lord, the one to whom he submits his life. And when Jesus says, yes, it's you, then there's, then there's a, a kind of a radical shift in the scriptures where Jesus then begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. And this is interesting because this is laid out differently than the Luke does. For example, Luke, who isn't Jewish, who probably writes from the most Western mindset where he wants to be linear, where he gets a bunch of interviews, when he lays out his story, he puts the Lord's Supper thing happening first, and then Judas is saying, this is out of Luke, he says, and this is talking about the same thing, he, Jesus, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you, do this in remembrance of me, in the same way, after the supper, so Luke is very clear, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant, my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. So the Judas is still there. The hand is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of it might be who would do this. Now, Luke doesn't specifically mention Judas, but it's clear that he's still there. So then why would Matthew arrange the story the way that he did? Why would he put Jesus talking about Luke, I mean, Judas' betrayal, and then after that talk about the Lord's Supper? Well, we've talked about the fact that Matthew is very stylistic in the way that he writes the Gospels. And Matthew will often put what he finds to be the most important aspect to a story or some kind of account that he's relating to in the middle of it. In this way, he kind of guides the reader to the heart of the story to what the heart of the matter is. He does this in big stories. He does this in little stories. Some scholars think that he does this with the entire gospel of Matthew because in the middle of Matthew's gospel are all the parables of Jesus. So he has this style where he's always kind of putting the, the central point in the middle, then he surrounds the story with the other details. And if you keep that in mind, then this is what we have going on here. You have at verse 25, it says, Judas who was the one who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answers, Yes, it is you. And then without any kind of discussion about what happens with Judas after that point, is there any, does he leave at that point? John tells us at this point he leaves. But then it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you see Matthew, he puts the story of Judas, and then there's this hard turn where he just starts talking about the Lord's Supper, and there's very little transition going on in between them. You have this incident with Judas, no kind of connecting thread, and then the incident with the Lord's Supper. What's going on? What's Matthew doing this for? Well, I think the answer is found in how he sets this up. He uses this phrase, while they were eating, to set up both of these times. It's as if Matthew's saying, these, these two incidents are really overlapping each other. They're going on while they're eating. And I believe that he puts Judas's part in there, the first, when he talks about you know, the betrayal of Judas. Because in this betrayal, what do we see? 
We see sin. We see the sin of Judas. And right next to that sin, where there's betrayal, where there's lying, where there's destruction of life, right next to it we see the solution, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the way Matthew sets this up is that he puts right before us the sin of Judas, which is a sin very much like all of humanity's sin. It's a sin of selfishness. It's a sin of betrayal. It's a sin of deception. It's a sin which really comes right out of the Garden of Eden, where where Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, lied to. And then right next to this sin, which leads to death and destruction, we have God's solution to that sin which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificial aspect of God. In other words, when Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper at this point, he's saying this body is going to be betrayed. And this body is going to suffer brokenness. But it's not going to be broken in vain. It's going to be broken for you so that you can be made whole. And this blood is going to be spilled. And this blood that's being spilled isn't going to be spilled in vain. It's going to be spilled with a purpose. It's spilled like the Passover lamb's blood was poured out and put upon the doorposts so that there can be a passing over from death into life. This is being done, Jesus is telling his disciples, for you, for the forgiveness of sin so that many will have life. And then he takes these elements and he has them through the symbol of the bread and the the wine take into themselves not just the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, kind of unifying them in one life, but also bringing into themselves that brokenness, which which is a symbol of that death, the death that sin brings into the world. The Apostle Paul talks about this as death to self. And in fact, baptism is the other ordinance that we have given to us, which is a symbol of death to self. If you read Romans chapter 6, he says, Don't you know that all of you who have been baptized have been baptized into his death? You have been immersed into the death of Christ, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too will also be raised into new life. Both communion and baptism are a symbol of the same thing, which is death. To self. Again, the Apostle Paul in other places writes, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This idea of death to self leading to new life is central to the scripture, and that's the picture that we have both in communion and in baptism, death to self, which will lead then to new life in Christ. And this is something that's sometimes hard for people to get their heads around. Sometimes people want to follow Jesus as a good teacher, or they want to follow him as a sense of doing the right thing, or being a good person, or even the idea of salvation, but we oftentimes overlook or we pass over the idea that really, in order to have Jesus as truly our Lord, in order to have that place of salvation, there has to be a death to self so that there can be life, new life, life eternal, not this mortal life. And joining with that death and life of Christ, which is why we call the Lord's Supper, communion. Communion means common and union. You put those two things together. It's a common thing that we have in unity with Christ. Common union, communion. And Jesus Christ is our common leader. He's the one that we follow. 
And if we follow him in common, we trust him in common, we believe in his death for us in common, then when we take this together, we are in common proclaiming our faith. We are proclaiming that we have followed Jesus Christ to that place of death, his death, which is, which is a substitute for our death, so that we can claim for ourselves the power of that through faith. And this is where faith comes in. It's a faith step to say, this death upon a cross 2,000 years ago affects my life today. And by faith, I take the step of believing that that sacrifice becomes my sacrifice and his death becomes my death because sin has to have its pay. And sin can either take us out as individuals and we die separated from God or we can accept that, that the sin has been paid for by the final sacrifice of Christ, the final sacrifice once and for all to bring us to God. And if by faith we believe that that applies to us, we ask the Holy Spirit to forgive us of our sins, ask God to forgive us of our sins, ask the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, and we begin to live a life that is not focused upon ourself, but is focused on Christ, then we have stepped into the place where this solution given to us by Christ is meant to lead us from death into life. And we do this together. We do this in unity with Christ first, and as a church body, we do it in unity with one another. And so this is why at IBCD, we have what's called an open communion. We say, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I'll say something. Usually the phrase I use is that you are a confessed believer in Christ, which means you have confessed it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. As Romans chapter 10 tells us that, then you will be saved. You are saved. Then you are welcome to be in communion, common union with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to identify your tradition as being Baptist because what is important is our unity is found in Christ. And in placing the sin of Judas, as Matthew does here, right next to the solution given to us by God, then we're reminded that sin, even though it is brutal and even though it costs a terrible cost and even though it brings about so much death and destruction in the world even today, and it has throughout all human history, it can be overcome by an even greater power. And that greater power is the power given to us by Jesus Christ, the power of his sacrifice for our sake, that God was willing to, according to the book of Philippians, empty himself of his glory, take upon himself the nature of a servant, a servant that was obedient even unto death. And so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kind of a paraphrase of that. And it reminds us that no matter what's been going on in our life, whatever sin that we have in our life, if we're willing to confess it and lay it down next to this symbol that Jesus calls us to participate in often so that we don't forget that there is a solution, if we're willing to lay that sin down next to his solution a solution that reminds us that in order for me to be forgiven of sin, I need to die to self again. I need to be willing to set it aside, allow the Holy Spirit to come into my life, straighten me out again, and walk away from this place that I've gotten selfish again to a place of trusting in God once again. And this is why we are to do this often. Because Christ knows that we live in a fallen world. 
He knows we live in a world where it's easy for us to kind of lose track. Because of the fallenness of the world, we're kind of like driving, it's kind of like driving in a car that has a permanent kind of bend in the frame. If you've ever driven a car that has a bend in the frame, which in my younger days when I was poor and couldn't afford anything else, I had cars like that. And there's one, you let go of the wheel and it just begins to drift off the road. You're constantly having to correct it, constantly having to correct it. And if you decide, well, I'm good, then you're going to go right off. That's kind of like what it is to be a Christian in this world. You know, we go through these places where we have these super spiritual highs where we're walking with Christ, everything feels great. We feel like we're driving on the right track. But you take your hands off the wheel and start looking around and forget that you're in a fallen place. Your life begins to drift. And so we're called to repent. We're called to remind ourselves who is our Lord and how we relate to him. And that's part of what Jesus does in the Lord's Supper. This is why he talks about do this when you meet together. In fact, in the early church, he said, do it every time you meet together. Then sin got in the way. The early church kind of messed that up, and they decided to make it more ceremonial. But we do it, and most churches do this, to remind us that this isn't a ritual that we're participating in, but it's a life compass to help us get reoriented back to our faith when we've allowed ourselves to get drifted by sin. So we're going to take communion today, and we're going to take a little time to, we're going to hand it out, and if you've been here before, you know how that works. We're going to hand it out, and then we're going to say a little something about, the, about each element, and then pray, and then after that, we'll take it together. And you'll know when we're taking it together. If you're with us for the first time, just when I start to go, you know it's time to go. All right, and uh, you're welcome, if, like I say, you're welcome to participate with us if this is your... If you're only going to be with us one time, or if you're going to be with us, uh, if you've been with us a while, if you are a confessed believer in Christ, you're welcome to participate. But if you are in a place where you're not really uh, in that place of being a confessed believer of Christ, then we would respectfully ask you to respectfully not participate because there's a union that you haven't yet embraced as your own. And just know that Christ is wanting you to embrace that. And if you decide, like, in the next 10 seconds, you know what? I'm there, too. Then join us. All right? So let's have a word of prayer. And then we're going to take, uh, take communion together. And if you have some sin that you've been dealing with and you need to have it dealt with, just remember, just like Judas' sin, you can set your sin next to the solution. Confess it and allow Christ to make those changes in your life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've provided for us. Not just provided for us in the material means, but provided for us in the, in the eternal and spiritual means. One of them, of course, being this symbol that you gave us of your sacrifice and love for us. And the reminder that no matter how dark our sin might be, like Judas's sin is just one of... Uh, kind of mind-blowing sin and betrayal and deception. May we be reminded that in, in the midst of all that, that we feel like so often bears our, you know, weighs our lives down with our own sin, that there is a solution and that you are that solution. You have been and you still are and you always will be. And Lord, as we take this, may we do so in a grateful in a heartfelt manner, examining our lives, dying to self, 
and living in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.